If you would, please take out your Bibles and join me in turning to Acts chapter 4. As we turn to God's Word, let's also turn to Him once again in prayer. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we are gathered here to hear You speak to us through Your Word. We ask, Father, that Your Holy Spirit would illuminate Your Word, that You would give us understanding of Your truth and give us a growing desire and ability to put it into practice. Father, thank You for being with us now and always, and we ask that You would show us Jesus. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. This is one of the questions that you really don't have to answer out loud. You guys know that I like it when you answer questions that I ask. But this is one that you really don't have to answer out loud. Have you ever been arrested? Has someone that you know and love been arrested. Now, what's your response when you learn of someone being arrested? Uh, Do they go on your blacklist? Do they, uh, you were going to have a get-together with them, but now you think uh, you can't do that? You know, what would it be like if I'm seen with someone who's been arrested? Well, today as we continue our series looking back at our history and moving forward in our mission and exposition of the book of Acts, we're going to explore a time when the apostles were arrested. Now, recently it was Good Friday and Easter Sunday, right? Remember, and there was the trial and the the Senate scene and the execution of Jesus, but you remember what happened first? Jesus was arrested. Arrested. Here we are in Acts. A selective record of all that Jesus continued to do and teach now by the Holy Spirit. Now just like the entire Bible, Acts shows us promises made and promises kept. Dennis Johnson, in his introduction to his commentary on Acts, says this, Like all Scripture, the purpose of Acts is to inform and deepen our faith in Jesus Christ. Acts does this in a special way by letting us view how Jesus kept His promises to be with His church and build His church through the personal presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Remember Jesus' promise. I will build my church. Here we are in Acts on a front row seat to see it happen. Remember early in Acts chapter 1, we read this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That was a promise. And we've already seen it starting to be fulfilled as we saw it on the day of Pentecost and following. But remember this promise also of Jesus. 
in the world you will have tribulation. Some translations, in the world you will have trouble. If you would turn with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. I want to read verses 18 through 21. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Remember what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Those are promises. Promises from Jesus. Now, both the promises of what will happen and how Jesus will be with us and take care of us provide assurance. Well, how does a promise become effective and how does a promise influence the way we live our lives? Come on, kids. We've talked about this before. How is a promise made effective? Especially a promise made by the one who can't break his promises. We believe them. We believe them. Last week, in Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 26, it was proclaiming the gospel. Although Peter's sermon began with you, this is what you have done. And although it ended with you, this therefore is what you must do. We saw that it is not about you. Because proclamation of the gospel is about God. What He has done and what He now offers. Last week was proclaiming the gospel. This week, today, is defending the gospel. In our text today, we will have the first instance of opposition to the gospel. It's the beginning of what would soon become full-blown persecution of the apostles and the church. We're going to examine the arrest, the trial, and the sentence. And then we're going to focus our attention on two important truths that emerge. So let's look at the first four verses from Acts chapter 4, the arrest. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Well, here's the scene. Peter and John are continuing to speak to the people. They're continuing to preach, to proclaim. And the priest, the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees come together and arrest them. Notice the language Luke uses. They came upon them. They arrested them. They put them in custody. This really sounds an awful lot like what happened to Jesus. They came upon him. 
They arrested him. They put him in their custody. And they took him away. Well, who? Who's doing this? The priest who are responsible for all the activity of the temple. The captain of the temple. The, the second to the priest who's there to maintain security and order. And then the Sadducees, and more about them in a moment, but the ruling class. The ones who had decided that it was important to maintain really good relationship with the political authority, the Roman government, in order for the Jewish religion and nation to survive. Now, why do they arrest them? Interestingly, our text says they were annoyed. Can you believe that? Being arrested because you annoyed someone. I think all of us would be in the slammer already, right? Annoying. But why are they annoyed? Well, the text gives us the answer. Teaching the people. These men are saying, wait a minute, we are the temple authority, not you. You have no right to teach. We have the right to teach. And in particular, they're proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now, as we will see, the, the Sadducees are, are, a, are a subset of Judaism who don't believe in the resurrection. They, they don't believe in the afterlife. And Jesus actually um, in Mark, we read where uh, they were asking him a tough question and Jesus says, you're, you're wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. And so here the Sadducees are still in the mix. And what is the response? The response to their proclaiming, you see the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees arrest Jesus. But look at we with verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed... And the number of the men came to about 5,000. So here's the proclamation of the word resulting on the one hand of arrest of those proclaiming. And on the other hand, people believing. The tactic that they will use is to impose silence. To stop the teaching by the arrest. By putting away in prison. And what follows an arrest is a trial. And so we come to verses 5 through 12, the trial. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him... This man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The Sanhedrin, 
is this ruling council, the Supreme Court of the Jews, made up of 71 members. They are authorities in all areas of Jewish life, both religious and political. They are in particular the guardians of religious orthodoxy. They are the ones who just weeks earlier had condemned Jesus, who had turned Him over to the Roman governor. The Sanhedrin is dominated by the Sadducees with a minority of scribal Pharisees. They are the rulers who are vested with authority. They are the elders there who are providing counsel and the scribes who are formulating doctrine. It's almost... Luke is going out of his way to say all of those who are opposing Peter and John. And we have a courtroom interrogating, ter- interrogation. And there's an intimidating question in verse 7. Who gave you this authority? That's an echo of what we heard in Mark. Jesus was asked also, who gave you this authority? And remember, Jesus didn't answer. The 71 men sat in a semicircle. They are attempting to trap Peter and John. If, if they answer, man, who gave you this authority? Well, we gave ourselves this authority. Well, then they have no right to do that. They're just agitators. But if they say it's God, then they are blasphemers and they can be sentenced as heretics. It's somewhat ironic here with this semicircle of 71 men all converging upon two apostles and most likely the healed man with them. At that moment, they have no idea what the God they profess to worship is doing in their midst. Peter and John have every reason to be intimidated and terrified. But Peter makes a defense, and we see that in verses 8 through 12. He responds, notice, by restating or reframing the question. Did you notice the great irony here? He he asks, he reframes the question and says, Are you asking us about how a good deed was performed? Are you asking how mercy was shown to this crippled man? What a brilliant response! It's disarming. It's respectful. And Peter then goes on in the Sanhedrin before the council to give a three-point sermon. First, number one, Jesus Christ of Nazareth is responsible for the healing of this man. It's not us. It's Jesus. And the word he uses for healing is the same word that's often used as salvation. And we'll talk about more of that in a moment. Number two, Jesus is alive and he is in the place of authority. He reminds them that they, that is the rulers and the people, crucified Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. And we've already seen that two other times in Acts. You did this, but God did that. But God. Peter then quotes their own scriptures, the Old Testament. And the word picture when he quotes Psalm 118 about the the stone that the builders rejected is the the chief quarterstone, the headstone. It's It's a word picture. Peter is saying, and we'll see this in Acts, that the church is built around and upon Jesus. 
He's the head of the church. There is no other. John Piper makes an interesting comment on this scene. He says this, This is the kind of truth that either makes converts or it makes enemies. It is not a live and let live truth. You see, Jesus does not give people the option of thinking He's just a good teacher or a a nice guy. Jesus, as C.S. Lewis rightly says, He didn't intend to give people that kind of an option. He's either the Savior and King and fall down and worship Him, or He's an imposter and you should do away with Him. We know from Scripture what happened. We see in this that there is only one way to God, that Jesus is the way. To reject Jesus is to reject God. Jesus Himself is saying that throughout John's Gospel. The disciples, the apostles are echoing the teaching of Jesus. My friends, should that surprise us? Is this church echoing the teaching of Jesus? It's a good question to always ask ourselves. Peter moves from healing to salvation, from the particular to the general. He sees one man's physical healing as a picture of salvation that is offered only in Jesus. And just as the name of Jesus had been that man's only hope for physical healing, so also Peter is saying that Jesus, the promised Messiah, the one who you put to death, whom God raised from the dead, He is your only hope for spiritual and all of life salvation. So in one sentence, verse 12, in one sentence, Peter sweeps away what we deal with now, postmodern relativism and religious pluralism. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We hear echoes of Isaiah when we hear God say, I am the Lord and there is no other. Well, arrests lead to trials and trials end with the pronouncement of a sentence. And so we pick up reading in verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God You must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for they were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. 
Notice the movement from being annoyed to being astonished, to being amazed, to marveling. Because who are these men before them? They're bold, they're uneducated, they're common, they're non-professionals. They're men who had been, as they rightly note, with Jesus. It's interesting, isn't it? Earlier, a 12-year-old young girl had approached Peter and said, Hey, you're one of his disciples, right? No, I, I don't know him. Here these men are recognized as being with Jesus and Peter will no longer deny, but gladly say yes and amen. They had nothing to say in opposition. They were speechless. Men who liked not just to deliberate and think, but liked to pronounce. They, they had nothing to say at that time. But the council deliberates and it finds itself on the horns of a dilemma. They cannot punish because they've broken no law. It was an act of mercy. It was a good deed. They cannot deny, however, this notable sign. So instead, they demand silence through a warning and a, and a charge. Speak no more. Sadly, the leaders here were motivated by fear of losing power and influence rather than a desire to glorify God, to be faithful to His Word, or to spread the true knowledge of salvation. So the council deliberates and speaks, but the apostles respond, and they ask a radical, which doesn't mean a far-out question. A radical question meaning to the root. To the root. They say, Do we obey you? And be silent, or do we obey God and speak? You be the judge, they say. Is it right to obey, obey God or man? This command to be silent, Peter and John respectfully refused. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. The result... They were threatened, but they were let go. And there was no punishment because, as we read, the people were praising God. Can you imagine the, the awkwardness of punishing while people are praising God? So here, in summary, the Sanhedrin, the council, they neither use reasoned debate nor logical argument nor inquiring speech. They don't actually ask to learn. The apostles, on the other hand, are spirit-empowered witnesses in speaking of what they had seen and heard. Who has the stronger case here? Those who want to talk it out or those who want to impose silence? Now that's the exposition of the arrest and the trial and the sentence. But there are a number of important truths that emerge from this narrative account. But we're going to focus and highlight just two of them. First, the gospel will be opposed. Because what we see in our text is that the gospel, the, the words that Peter and John are proclaiming, the gospel threatens the religious leaders of Israel. Who do you think you are teaching people about religion? We have earned the right to teach. Because you see, the, uh, the gospel, as we will see throughout Acts, presents an enormous challenge to their authority and influence. The gospel is on a full-out assault 
on their whole meritoric or works kind of based way of thinking about life. Opposition to the gospel we see unites people who are otherwise opposed to one another. The Sadducees are the liberals of the day, compromising with Rome. The Pharisees are the conservatives who are committed to to knowing the law and keeping Israel faithful. And they are completely united in their opposition. It's it's like in Mark chapter uh, 3 when we read earlier, when we were going through Mark of the, the Pharisees and the Herodians gathered together to figure out how to destroy Jesus. There's nothing in common. Intellectually, their positions are diametrically opposed. They are hostile to each other. And yet, they are united in opposition. You see, the gospel just not only unites those who are in Christ, the gospel unites those who are outside of Christ in opposition. Now, why does the gospel threaten? And instead of saying religion... I'm going to say man-made religion. Why? Why does the gospel threaten a man-made religion? Well, one thing, the gospel exposes the heart. The light of the gospel exposes the darkness of heart. heart. And kids, you know what it's like sometimes when you go into a dark room and you turn on the light? What happens to the, the rat or the mouse or the bugs when the light comes on? What do they do? They run for cover. Humans are just like it. When the light of the gospel shines, if we're not covered in something that can withstand that light, as it were, we run. We run and try to hide. The gospel exposes man-made religion as self-saving. The attempts we make to live good enough so that God will have to favor us The gospel reveals the absolute hopelessness of this approach to God. You see, the gospel tells us that it takes Jesus to save us. That's what Peter and John are doing. It's Jesus and Jesus only that can save you. His life, His death, His resurrection. And in so doing, the gospel tells us that salvation is outside of us. A great... A great... um, word to use is not accepting Jesus, but receiving Jesus. And we see that in John 1. And the thing about receiving Jesus is it helps us see that He comes to us from the outside. Faith is is from the outside of us. It comes to us. It doesn't well up inside of us. So we see that for good reason, the gospel is opposed But we also see that the gospel will be defended through spirit-empowered boldness. Let's just mention for a few moments boldness. Spirit-inspired and empowered courage and confidence to speak in spite of any danger or threat. Boldness enabled the early church to proclaim the gospel in the face of tremendous opposition, in the face of tremendous danger. Some of the adults here are doing a uh, course in Sunday school called um, A Time for Confidence. And we're looking at confidence in God, confidence in the Word, confidence in Christ. This morning was confidence in the Gospel. Confidence that's given to us by God 
helps fuel that boldness to proclaim. It's confidence. It's an attitude of openness that stems from a lack of fear. Did you notice that boldness does not mean being loud or forceful? We don't have the audio version of this narrative account, but I don't think you would hear Peter raise his voice. I don't think you would hear Peter and John argue. They just rephrased the question brilliantly. He preaches a three-point sermon about Jesus, and he's very respectful in his declining to obey them. What do we see in our text? We see Peter. Boldness has replaced his earlier cowardly denials. And I think it's important to recognize that boldness is not a natural human trait. Arrogance, maybe, of course, but not boldness. It's not a product of willpower or some self-directed pep talk. Rather, it is the gift of the risen Lord through His Spirit's transforming power. You see, being with Jesus, listening to Jesus' word and praying in Jesus' name imparts supernatural boldness to bear witness to Jesus. So how about us? Uh, We, that is the church, are the ones who have been given the task of proclaiming Christ, of, of speaking How are we doing? Preaching Christ and the gospel at the present time, I don't think it's very dangerous where we are, but it's certainly unpopular. Right? But have you noticed the more hostile the environment, the more confidence, the more relative and at peace and ease, the least interest to proclaim. The harder, the more proclamation. The easier, the quieter. I think the American church is in a great place. It's going to be hard to be a Christian. A lot more going forward than it was in the past. And that will be absolutely wonderful for the church. Because you'll have to count the cost. And you'll have to really believe what we've saying. All I have is Christ. He is my life. In the Navy, when one of our sailors was getting pummeled by the big, the boss man, you know, the boss, his response was always, well, is he going to take away my birthday? No, he can't take away my birthday. That gave the sailor hope. Can they take away Christ from us? Absolutely not. You are bold when you are sure of what you are saying. Remember John writes John so that people would believe in Jesus and that by believing they would have life in His name. And he writes his first letter. Why? I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. You see, if you know you have eternal life, you're going to be bold and confident and compassionate And your cheeks are going to be flooded with tears for your unbelieving family and neighbors. Being sure of yourself is not arrogance. It can actually be a mark of humility as you believe God's word. So two things to remember going forward. The gospel will be opposed 
by those who adhere to a man-made religion and the gospel will be defended by those who are given spirit-empowered boldness. So a couple of questions for all of us. Is your testimony of Jesus' grace to you? Now, notice I did not ask, is your testimony of your decision? Is your testimony of your commitment? I said this, is your testimony of Jesus' grace to you stifled by fear and intimidation? Or rather, is your testimony of Jesus' grace to you stifled by apathy and indifference? Because my friends, pick your poison. Fear, intimidation, apathy, indifference, they all shut us down. I mean, let's face it. When we say we believe in Jesus and He's the only way, uh, people are going to look at us and think we're crazy. And kids, those around you in school and who you're hanging out with, they may think, you're superstitious. Get, get real. Get with the real world. This is the real world. Here. Gathered as God's people. Listening to Him speak to us through His Word and by His Spirit. Now, if your testimony is stifled right now, I urge you to seek the boldness that the Holy Spirit alone can give. You spend time with Jesus in His Word and in prayer and ask Him for the courage to be faithful in your calling as witnesses to the saving power of Jesus made known in the Gospel. And my friends, you know what the answer to not proclaiming the Gospel is? It's the Gospel, right? You keep going back to the good news of the gospel, and that pushes you forward. But here's where we want to end. Look with me at verse 13. Verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I think there's life and death in a preposition. In Christ, most certainly. Out of Christ, absolutely. With Jesus. I don't know any Christian that doesn't want to be for Christ. And I don't know any Christian who doesn't want to be more like Christ. But in order to be for Christ, and certainly to be like Christ, you have to be with Christ. When Jesus called His first disciples, He appointed them, we read in Mark, what did we read once long ago? In Mark 3, And He went up on the mountain and called to Him those whom He desired, and they came to Him. And He appointed twelve so that they might be with Him, and He might send them out to preach. You see, before Jesus sent them out to preach, He appointed them to be with Him. My friends, can those around you tell that you've been with Jesus? Or that you are with Jesus now? And how is Jesus with us? By the indwelling Holy Spirit. You are with Jesus. I am with Jesus now. 
through His Word, through prayer. We've seen that although the apostles could be arrested, the gospel cannot be arrested. It cannot be put in chains. My friends, let's give thanks to God that the gospel cannot be locked up. It cannot be silenced. Because all those who have received and are resting upon Christ alone for salvation as He's offered in the gospel are living proof that the gospel was not stopped, but the gospel continues to go out in power. May this church, may our lives, may our families be testimonies of the grace of Jesus and the continuing power of the gospel to change us and others. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, thank You for showing us that the promises that You make are the promises You keep. And we thank You for all the promises that assure us that You are always with us, that You will never leave us, that You will finish what You begin. We rejoice, but we also thank You, God, for the promises that we will be opposed. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. And so, Father, help us to be armed with the truth of Your unstoppable Word. Father, help us to be bold, not in loudness or aggressiveness or brashness, but help us be bold in being uncompromisingly confident that the gospel is indeed the power of salvation for all who believe. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.